Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody. On tonight's episode, we scratch another film off the Satoshi Kon filmography as we look at Millennium Actress. But before we obviously get into that, it's uh, ask what you've been watching, and it's been one of those weeks where I really have not got a lot to report. I've been watching things, but... Nothing to really report on, um, other than I can say Fire Force is still really good, Dragon Ball Super is really good, and I keep being tempted by the lovely new Blu-ray box set, but again, it's like, where do you store such a thing in this house where it's not going to get destroyed, because I don't live this wonderful, like, bachelor sort of lifestyle that Steven does, where he's just got, like, loads of flexible cash to flash on fancy new, uh, releases of things, but, uh, Steven... What about yourself? Is that a segue? Ben. Is that a segue? <laughs> All I've heard since in our pre-production meeting is about how that you've got fi- how you got pretty things that I don't have. Well, what we have to remember is it's it's not so much it's not so much bachelor lifestyle. It's sad divorce man. <laughs> All right. So um... I wasn't going to say <laughs> that to you. I was just building up the mythos here of the life you lead as Scrooge McDuck, in- international playboy, <laughs> Stephen Palmer. Um, yeah, no, I'm far from it, but I do love me some, um, DVDs and Blu-rays, and I was going to say our friends at Eureka, but they're not our friends, because they never send us anything nope, free. they don't talk to us yet. Um, if... no, but I will, go, I'm now going to, um, tell you about two of the things that I've bought from them in the last month or so, and they both hop back to previous episodes of the show, um... To start with, finally, a Blu-ray edition of The Bride with White Hair. Um, Ronnie Yu's um, uh, very famous uh, wuxia drama with the great immortal Bridget Lin and the the great um, Leslie Cheung. Um, We've talked about this before. Um, Now, my... I've got two copies of Bride of White Hair already, and they are very of their time. If you remember, it's all very blue and blue filters and lots of smoke. And every copy I've got, even though it's on DVD, looks like it's been recorded from a video. Um, the sound's a bit off. The, the um, and it's clearly beautiful, but you're like looking at it through like when I, if I don't put my glasses on basically is what it looks like so um eureka 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 have um have released it in the last month or so a a blu-ray version um so it's a 4k restoration um and i have to say when i first turned it on i thought oh that looks all right a lot better okay. than what i'm used to and then, and then we get to the scene. Do you remember the scene where Leslie Chung's character meets Bridget Lin, sort of face to face, and she's swimming in a, in a, in a cave pool, and there's some nonsense going on where she says, "No one can look at me in my eyes." Says, "Well, I've seen all of you, so you're going to have to yeah. kill me." And anyway, that that's quite a famous scene, uh, and. and suddenly you can see things other than blue and there's much more color in the scene and actually it's a really nice restoration i think they're still as with a lot of hong kong films of the time i think they're all filmed on pretty shitty (laughs) film stock and stuff like that i think you can only polish a turd so much but this one does look really good um it's not got a huge amount of extras um it's got some a couple of um, new commentaries, but oh, so one new one, and then there's the old one with Ronnie Yu that's around before. There's some uh, 
interviews and a, a making of featurette which seems to be ripped straight from a video mm. cd <laughs> including only taking up about a third of the screen and a nice little a nice little booklet to go with it so it's not the flashiest um release that's come out from eureka um but it's really nice to have it in blu-ray and it does it does look better and it, it's the best version of the film i've got and i don't know if they're new subtitles don't uh, it doesn't say it is oh yeah newly translated the subtitles are a ton better um they're a little more accurate to what's being said rather than inferred what's being said yeah. if you know what i mean um so yeah really really happy with that um and then much more on brand this is what you're jealous of is um eureka's uh it calls it a box set but that's pushing a bit um they've uh, they've done mothra in a gloriously garish <laughs> pink it's and like yellow looking at the sun when you Fox. look at that thing it's like <laughs> i don't know if they're hoping to attract mothra with that box set but it's certainly a yeah. unique color scheme that they went with uh <laughs> with that one it's 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 very <coughs> pop art it's only the mothra film um so there's there's none of the other sort of uh films that she's appeared in are on here so it's not it's not like the um the gorgeous gamma set i've got and the gorgeous um godzilla yeah. set that you've got um it's got the english and japanese versions of the film and you can also listen to the music and effects on its own if people really do that kind of thing um looks really really good so it's um i don't think it's been restored i just think those films were actually probably they've been the original masters have probably been available all along i think the godzilla films have all come out rather well haven't they in the set that you've yeah got. i mean so i guess it's just what what you've got that was to play obviously true criteria and Eureka, again, are very are pretty well noted for doing a, a nice restoration uh, releases as well. I mean, the other problem I always have with the older releases, when you put them through the Blu-ray sort of filter and everything looks a lot nicer, you get to see a lot more sort of like the strings, um, which is my main concern. You, you do. Because... This, this, this isn't too bad on this one. Because um, if you, I guess Mothra isn't in it a lot. <laughs> if you remember, it's mostly those two little tiny girls, isn't it? And lots of people walking around. Um, really nice. And for you, your um, your uh, critic hero, Mister Newman, oh good, has, has a little piece on there. Um, not his most um, in-depth piece, but yeah, he he, he talks for a while. No, I mean, in front of a... yeah, I mean, when it comes to, I think when it comes to. Kim Newman's sort of specialist field. I mean, it's mainly sort of bargain basement fodder and horror is where mm. his main sort of loves lie in life. And as I say, it's surprising the fact that they went with him for this one. I mean, obviously, the main sort of people I would think to go to would be someone like August Vagone or perhaps to an extent Tom Mez. Um, you know, this obviously, if you could always just phone myself, but uh, I'm <laughs> guessing they didn't have my yeah, number, it's... so. It was it was interesting. They didn't do um, either of those, or even Tony Raines, who gets on most of these mm. things. Um, so I was a bit surprised it was Kim Newman because it's not really his his ballywick. Although you know it's very it's very good. Um, also comes with a poster, which I'll never put up, <laughs> and yeah. a nice little sort of I call them card back books. I guess I'm sixty four pages and a lot, which is um, equally garish. Um, but actually readable. It's got a nice piece by Jasper Sharp, who used to run the Midnight Eye website, which is a really fantastic website for for Japanese cinema. Yep. Um, Richard Thomas. And then a f and a little extract from a new, um, which I suspect's what this this is really about. There's Ishira Honda, a life and film, a new book about the um, about the director. Um, which I think they're probably pimping as well, and I wouldn't be surprised if they've got something to do with the release of it. But yeah, it's a nice, but I would suggest slightly overpriced set, um, and it is particularly garish. I'll never lose it. Um, in fact, I could probably take it out with me and never get run over by a car. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's nice. It's nice to have. I like the Mothra film when we watched it. Um, it's just. Um, yeah, I just think it's just a, little, just a little bit overpriced for what it is. I'd have liked to have had 
another film on there or something else like a feature length documentary or something like that um but well worth picking up if you haven't already if you are a millionaire playboy <laughs> like me and uh well yeah, it's, it's it's not that i mean it's 25 quid <laughs> that's not as yeah, i said I it's not what sort of money i spend on I physical media um i didn't i didn't get it for 25 quid, you pay for yeah, it, it uh, about five pound less than okay that. but that's still a lot that's a lot for a blu-ray yeah but they're supposed to use a very sort of was... boutique releases we because of eureka i mean everything's it's like with arrow uh, with a lot of their mm. sort of box set stuff it's it's limited runs that they're they're doing it's not like you know like warner brothers or something who are just like churning up thousands of a particular title that, are they so that's right and and and, the, and it's not going to be five pounds in a few years time on the other hand it's not numbered or anything so it's not and it's one of those boxes with those annoying little piece of paper sleeve on it that means yeah that i just want to rip off it but it's all part of it oh, the <laughs> well yeah but it's just a piece of paper that's um Held on by a little piece of plastic. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and anyway, if you go to my, um, if you go to my Twitter and my uh, my Facebook, you'll see me taking a, having taken a picture of it and seen your barely concealed jealousy on full display. <laughs> but, yeah. What's your Twitter no, then, really, Stephen? Really, 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 at LPV. There you go. So um, um, there you go. There's, there's an advert. But yeah, no, nice, nice. They're nice. You know, they're, they're two films I like, especially you know, Bride with White Hair is is one of my favourite films of all mm. time. All, all I hope for now is they do Peking Opera Blues at some point because I'd really love a a Blu-ray of that um, to complete my Bridget Lynn collection. And surprised it didn't include Bride with White Hair too as well, especially if you're looking at the Mafra set and they're doing both the English and the um, original mm. Japanese cuts of the film. It kind of made sense to put them both in together, unless they're obviously planning to do Bribery White Tower 2 a little further down the line, even though it doesn't obviously have the same court appeal as the first film. Um, which, again, is always very weird, because it's like with the first definite movie. It's left very open um, at the end of that movie. But, I mean, as we... I mean, we had a lot of fun when we reviewed Bribery White Tower on the show, and, I mean, let's not forget, I mean, it uh, features a conjoined villain, which is always kind of fun. Um, and some real sort of over dramatic antics in the cave. It does, <laughs> and you know, and it's got two two of the biggest stars of the of of eighties um, Hong Kong cinema, and of course Ronnie Yu, who who's one of the Asian um, directors who's actually made a couple of hit films in the states, although maybe not at super high level, but. Bride of Chucky's really freaking enjoyable. <laughs> yes, and he did uh, Freddy vs. Jason as well, which was fun. Um, so really surprising moves that he, he made. I suppose that the, you look at Bride of White Hair, it's got those horror elements in it, so it, it's not too much of a leap. Funnily enough, funnily enough, in the little documentary <laughs> on it, Ronnie Yu comes on screen. I don't know when. I don't know when it's filmed. Well, it's, it's 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 filmed just before the release in Hong Kong. So you know, back in the eighties, and he does say, "People are asking me why me, action director Ronnie Yu, would make a swordplay film." <laughs> so, lots of people are asking that question, mate. And uh, yeah, and he, and he explains himself away. It's it's just it's just a shame there isn't anything more modern to go with it. It, 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 it could put Bridget Lin and Leslie Chung in. In some kind of context, the the booklet that goes with it talks a lot. There's a there's a whole thing about Bridget Lin in there, but I think Leslie Chung's missed out a bit. Um, but I suspect anyone who's going to buy Bride with the White Hair probably knows about the pair of them a lot anyway. Yeah, um, and so I believe Eureka have also got the H-Men coming out as well. Yeah, that's a film that I reviewed recent kicks a while ago, and. Um, yeah, just another very early um, sort of nuclear panic mm. monster movie. Um, quite enjoyable, actually. I've got a review somewhere on Eastern Kicks from a couple of years ago. But yes, there is, there does seem to be a push from them and, and, and sort of Criterion and others to get a lot of these kaiju films out. And also some classics. Obviously, the Project A that we talked about in last episode was a Project A 1 and 2 box set. Um, there's been a fairly recent uh, Jackie Chan, please. I mean Jackie Chan stuff. There seems to be a Jackie Chan movie 
put out by one of them every <laughs> every month, really. <laughs> they certainly, uh, they certainly seem to be a popular one. I mean, the eighty-eight, I think eighty-eight films have been put out mm. a couple as well. Um, in yep. terms of issue of Hondra, though, uh, if you are looking for obviously a good read while you're waiting for a new book to come out, uh, you can obviously check out Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men, the fantastic cinema of Ishiro Honda, which is by uh, Peter H. Brothers. It's a very good read and uh, goes into the behind the scenes of all the films, and it's about the size of a phone book as well, so it's pretty in-depth. Um, one to file alongside uh, Nightmare USA as well. So um, That would be my recommendation for if you're looking for some reading material on uh, on Hodor. Yeah, absolutely. Christmas is coming. Christmas is I coming. I know, Christmas is... Hey, get, get something. I'm, <laughs> get a nice book. I'm hoping that uh, that Krampus will bring me some new equipment <laughs> because my equipment's really old. So it's one of those Christmases where normally I get like all my viewing stuff and all my books and stuff for the year um, sorting that one, that one slot and... Uh, this year it's going in a completely different direction, but then again, I've got so much stuff around here to to watch and stuff, and I think with the whole Dragon Ball uh, watch as well, I'm hoping to make a big dent in that over the festive period, especially. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I have to say from from the millionaire mansion, yeah. from the Playboy mansion in which I live, um, I didn't really need to buy any more Blu-rays or DVDs, no, because if I never buy another one again. I still have enough stuff in this house to watch and rewatch if I live another fifty years. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a battle. I tell you what, it might be it might be time for Music Magpie to come around <laughs> and pick some stuff up just just so I've got room to live. <laughs> well, you only you only have to move house a couple of times, and that really kills your collecting bug. I tell you that much. So <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, when, when, but no, if you when out. When, when my butler passes away, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> if, you, if you need me to get rid of anything, go and collect anything, just let me know. I have to say, there may there may be things that I could pass on to okay. you. Cool. Um, anything else, Tom? I don't. I, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a it's been a purchasing old favourites rather than uh, searching for new things other than tonight's film. Definitely so. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, though, we're going to be looking at tonight's featured viewing, uh, which is Millennium Actress from 2001 by the always wonderful Satoshi Khan. Why This Film Podcast looks back at the movies of your childhood. Join me, Emily Slade, each week as I step back in time to revisit the films that you grew up with. Maybe you haven't seen it for a while. Maybe you've watched it every day since you were eight. Maybe you totally forgot it existed. Whatever the movie, I'm here to go back with you through nostalgia untold and memories unnumbered. Together, we'll ask, why this film? And we're back. Um, as we said, the uh, start of the episode tonight's featured viewing is Millennium Mattress from 2001, directed by Satoshi Khan, um, who also wrote the script, screenplay for this one as well, as well as being produced by Madhouse. Uh, the film itself is loosely based on the lives of actresses uh, Setsuko Hara and Hideko Takamini. Um, I don't know if those are two names that really sort of resonate with yourself, Stephen. Um, Setsuka Hara, um, she was sort of one of Ozu's muses. Very good. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know the other lady. Um, or if Hideko. I do, I, oh, Twenty Four Eyes and stuff like that. She was in, wasn't she? I, I, I did have a little look up at her. So, I'm Twenty Four Eyes. Yeah, it was Twenty Four Eyes. Yeah, yeah, some floating clouds. Um, so I'm aware of her, but I'm, I'm more aware of Setsuka Hara, who's, um, yeah, it was one of the the great actresses of her um of her age yes um the film itself it uh, follows the life of a actress who's uh, been living as kind of a recluse um and uh, she's 
the actress is called Chiko uh, Fujiwara and she's approached by this uh, documentary crew who are basically wanting to do a retrospective interview on her life um, especially as the studio that she was uh, such a part of the uh, Genie studio has ba- recently gone bankrupt and is now being uh, demolished so they want to do a retrospective on her life and in turn she leads them on not only a retrospective of her life, but a very unique journey as the crew soon find themselves not only replaying um, her life through film, but also find themselves being very much integrated as part of the story in a very unique take on a um, tale of love and loss, really. This is a unique film, especially with Sashi Khan, uh, director, so very obsessed with the idea of dreams and dreamscapes the fact that we have here have a film that's more sort of grounded in reality it has sort of fantastical leaps but it is um at the same time just very a lot more grounded than his other films putting it more in tune with the likes of tokyo godfathers which we reviewed um last year but um, Stephen, I mean, obviously we've reviewed quite a few Satoshi Gun movies on this podcast. I mean, at the, looking at the count, we only really have to look at Paprika and uh, maybe look at Par- his uh, TV show Paranoia Agent, and then we've done everything. Yeah, because unfortunately he, he died young. And, you know, I think even before starting this podcast all those episodes ago, um, I was aware of, well, I'm very aware of Perfect Blue as a film I knew well. And I guess we've talked about that before. Um, aware of Paprika. I wasn't aware of this movie. And so this was a first time watch for me. Um, it's not it's not one that usually gets talked about, I guess. I mean, per- per- Perfect Blue's the... Yeah, per- Perfect Blue is the one that um, most people are aware of. Um, this, did get a, this did get a release at the cinema last year. Uh, like a like a sort of small festivaly kind of release um, at the back. I think I think in the middle of last year. I, I didn't see it. I've just been reading lots of people who said they saw it. Um, but wow, so happy. This is really good. <laughs> I really really enjoyed this. Um, it it you know it. I, I still think Perfect Blue is better. Um. But this is what a what a clever film and what an example of how to use animation to make a film. Can you imagine the budget they'd have to do to make this film live action and to make it as wonderfully seamless? There's certainly other. I wouldn't say that. I mean, there's certainly other films that have matters this film. Um, and certainly not as coherent. I mean, you have to look at things like Aronofsky's *The Fountain*, which has sort of three films within a film. Uh, you can also look at *Sucker Punch* by Zack Snyder, which has many different films in the same film. Just because, um, th- yeah, but but they would have cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. Hmm. I'm not sure how much this costs to make, but I'm actually actually um, yes, it costs 1.2 million dollars. I don't think you're going to make that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you aren't going to make this sort of movie for that sort of money, no. <laughs> and apparently it's the last major film to be made with hand-drawn cells. Yep, the time animation was moving on to more digital, mainly because it's a lot quicker process than doing hand-drawn cells, um, especially when it comes to the correction process. When you think of with hand-drawn cells, you've got to go for each one individually and to try and correct them all which is essentially the case of redrawing cells it's not uh it's a very sort of uh labored process even though it obviously has that sort of presence much like vinyl does mm. this is one of the uh those cases where you can accept like with a production that um if you're doing it as a digital way it's a lot easier to clean up cells and just to sort of streamline the whole process especially when you're looking at replicating character models and backgrounds um it's a whole lot easier than uh if you're doing it the cell formats where essentially you have to draw the same character over and over again whereas if you're doing it digitally you can just replicate it as many times as you want to just like move it like a um do you remember when you used to make those paper drawings with like the pins in 
Mm. And you can like move the legs and stuff. When you're doing things digitally, it essentially allows you to move move them like that. So it's a lot. It's a lot a much easier process for animation, and often requires smaller teams uh, than you would if you were doing everything by hand. So uh, when you compare to like the Disney films, like The Little Mermaid, when you've got like three pages of animators, and you compare it to something like a Pixar animated movie, where it's about half that. So yeah, I mean, as I said, it was this sort of like marks the hand. It's one of those films where you can see the handover in much the way that when you watch John Carpenter's The Thing, you can see the handover of like where pra- the last film that like, was just like hundred percent practical effects, and from then it was sort of like practical effects with digital assistance, and then just moving more into just digital effects. Now we're at that horrible stage where we have CGI blood and fire and everything looks like trash, just because it's easier for for turnaround on your production. So, but uh, that's a discussion for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Toshi Khan, certainly a director of, I'm very, I'm a very big fan of. Um, though, like yourself, this is the first time watching myself. I don't know why. I've not got around to watching it until now. I've always been really into like Paprika and Perfect Blue and Tokyo Godfathers was another first time watch for myself. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know what it was about this one, but at the same time now I'm watching it, I can't understand why it's not as popular as the others. Maybe it's just because it's um, it's subject matter. Well, I it's think I think, think, I think there's, there's there's two things. One is it's not Perfect Blue. I think I think you know, many things aren't <laughs> exactly, but that that sometimes affects the way people view someone's um, back catalogue. The other thing is it came out in the same year as Spirited Away, and I think Spirited Away casts a shadow over the international renown of anything else that was brought out from Japan that year, especially in the animated sense. So it didn't win all the awards. It didn't get all the. You know, it, it probably didn't get the word of mouth. It probably didn't get the box office that it maybe should. Have. It had a, you know, it had a release. I think DreamWorks put it out in the states. But, but again, it, it's, it's not Spirited Away, which is probably the most well-known Japanese animation of all time. Certainly at this point in in in, in the world, um, it also is. I mean, I guess we'll talk about stuff in the film, but the film looks at. Japanese history through a lens of its cinema and so it's referencing a lot of things films like Throne of Blood like um, Ozu's films um, even um, I guess Godzilla and films like that in a way that might not necessarily be something that people fully understand so you know the this this is as for a film for a film fan this is amazing because it's a, it's a film about film it's about lots of other things as well and also it's concentrates quite a lot about a piece of japanese history that the japanese don't like talking about and that's the sort of the, the sino-japanese war which includes things like you know the rape of nanking and stuff like that where which are not taught very well internally in japan it's you know it's it's again maybe there's other films we could talk in more depth that seem more suitable to this but yes it it talks about a period of history in depth that maybe even lots of japanese don't know about and it talks about you know and it uses a lot of films which only us film buffs will go ah look that's trying to blood (laughs) but um so maybe it just doesn't have the appeal or something like perfect blue yes it's talking about but it's talking about pop culture and it's talking about stalkers and things like that which resonate in the east and the west just the same um you know when we when we looked at perfect blue we both felt it's a film that could be made now yeah these 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 stories are still coming out now whereas this is i don't know it's looking it's looking at a at a version of japan that maybe not everybody's au fait with yeah, when it came to this film, I saw it more just like it, uh, the, the film in many ways is paying homage to the history of Japanese cinema. Um, and you can see those obvious, obvious moves, moves in there. I mean, obviously how it moves from 
from like the uh, the art house, like the Kurosawa samurai movies, and as you said already, you've got elements of like Front of Blood and Ran and Sanjiro in there. You get to move on to like the films, that, the more sort of art house sort of period and things such as like late spring and early summer. We get the nod to the kaiju movies, which I think if they hadn't found a way to work a kaiju nod in there, um, I think it would have been a real sort of disservice, especially because it is such a major part of you know Japanese pop culture as well as Japanese cinema as well um, it paves that sort of way in the same way that we look at like the Kung Fu movies from Hong Kong I think the kaiju movies in many ways serve the same sort of bridge um, in film history even if they're not viewed by art by movie scholars as being as the same I think for kaiju fans they certainly have the same sort of their own sort of art appeal to them and then we obviously get as the film goes on and we end in like you know the sci-fi feature which is for myself kind of like a 2001 space odyssey homage I can think of like a Japanese version of of what that could be so yeah I mean it actually reminds me of um couple of the gods there are there are space the space outfits remind me a lot of the space outfits in some of the Godzilla films and oh from like Destroyer Monsters yeah yeah <laughs> but but I think I think you're right and of course those films the stories that those films are telling are obviously mirroring her life and of course the space segment is both at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film very 2001 yeah birth and death and all those kind of things that that Kubrick likes to talk about. And I, I actually, a lot of re- people who review this film compare Con to Kubrick, interestingly enough. So there seems to be some 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 resonance between the two. But yes, it's uh, that, that, that. Interesting. She, she, she you know, you know, she, she, she you know, it's, it, it, it's the life of somebody. They're going to die at the end. Spoilers. <laughs> She's quite old when we first meet her. But <laughs> well, yes, it's... you know. Yeah, that 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 blast off into the unknown is very two thousand and one. Yeah, her death, her death, and that playback into that into that that science fiction feature are, are very connected with uh, with her death. So I, I agree with you. So the main sort of main sort of story of of her life is that when she's a teenager, she um, encounters a artist who's also a political dissident. And as you said already, this is during the Sino-Japanese War, which, again, I think is very much like with Germany and uh, the event, you know, the events of World War Two. It's pretty much been eliminated from their history in many ways. Mm. Um, it's this sort of like source of national embarrassment. And there is still a lot of resentment from that particular war. I mean, certainly in regards to like the Chinese people, there's a lot of sort of resentment there still, which <laughs> all over, all over Asia, mate. The Japanese, with, with obvious reason. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, pretty horrific when you when you get into uh, when you get into that. And I don't know if there's any films on that particular conflict at all. Or um, now you've caught me out. I can't think of many that are from the Jap. I can't think of any that are from the Japanese point of view. Obviously, no. there are some Chinese films. Um, there are. Plenty of Korean films that use the Japanese invasion and because uh, I can think just... of Flowers of War, but obviously yep. that's obviously from the from the Chinese perspective. Yeah, um, and so in Christian Bell, that's interesting. Actually, actually, quite good. Bit of it a, is. Bit, I was surprised bit a, it didn't. Bit of a hidden gem of that one is, I think. Definitely so. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I said, she meets this uh, artist and she. He has she, he gives her this key, and at the same time she's going off to be an actress, and her hope is that by becoming a famous actress he would recognise her, and this will be a way for them to you know reconnect, and she could give him this key, uh, which we ultimately never find out what the key is for, um, and it just becomes this sort of like symbol that she constantly has on herself all all the time and from this point we really just sort of see her film career as she moves from film to film to film um along the way you know dealing with the fact that she's just constantly chasing this shadow of a person she always feels that she's like two steps behind um catching up with this this person 
Mm. But it's this sort of like journey, this you know, this quest to to find uh, them that sort of really sort of drives her in life, really. So, um, and all the while we've got our two documentary filmmakers who, through her retelling the story, managed to work their way into the sort. They're sort of like woven into the story as sort of like onlookers, where they play like a documentary crew, which is a really unique sort of twist, especially. Um, as the as the director of this uh, this duo constantly finds himself being more and more involved in the story, and as we go on, we find uh, the connection he also has to this actress as well, which is uh, and yeah, he an becomes twist. becomes part of the story. So it's it's kind of surreal. They and they kind of accept it, but as she sort of tells the story, they kind of slip into her memories, uh, but they're part of the past so the guy that's like the the film the, the guy with the camera is always very much an observer yes he does always the uh just constantly watching and it's it's very surreal to see this guy with a camera recorder just constantly like filming what's happening as and it makes you feel like oh well they're actually there but they're not really they're just onlookers in this story it's just except except the the interviewer fella does start taking part in, oh, doesn't he? Banner. He, yeah because he does eventually rescue her from an awkward situation which then leads to one of the most beautiful parts of the film where she's sort of riding a horse and then it's suddenly a uh, uh, like a sedan chair on wheels and then it's suddenly a car and and it, that's just a glorious piece of of animation but yes and then it turns out oh actually he he knows the reason he's because he's quite besotted with her isn't he the 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 what's his what's the fella called you just said Tachi, his name, didn't yeah you? he's uh tachi banner and when it's first banner, like, inter- yeah. when he's first introduced he's watching one of her films and you get the mm. idea that he's kind of this obsessed fan who's setting out to make this fan documentary uh the fact that she's lived as this recluse for like the last um I don't know how many years. I think it was like thirty years or so. So she's completely pulled it, removed herself from the public eye since she retired from acting, and he's really sort of like excited the fact he's managed to track it down. And she's agreed to give this interview, and he's sort of keen to know why she sort of became this recluse, why she retreated from the public eye, and. It's it's uh, through the course of this this story that we find out his own connection to it. It's not just as a fan. Um, he started off working as a member of the crew on one of her her set, on one of her sets towards the end of her career, and he was always the onlooker, and he felt that uh, she would never sort of notice him because she was this huge star, um, and he was just you know just lowly crew member. So, although he does end up having a crucial bit of information. <coughs> Which also, which also sort of leads to the end. But yes, he suddenly becomes both. He's both part of these memories in the second yeah. second half of our memories, and he's he remains an onlooker. In fact, I think he sort of, sort of observes himself, doesn't he? It's very, it's very meta, um, but it's glorious. It just makes so much sense to me, um, because it could have easily just been a journey through film. And, you know, it could have played just onto historical, you know, said, oh, this is what happened in Japan, this is the films are being made. But no, there's more of a story here. And actually, reading up on um, Setsukahara's past, it, it quite, plays quite a lot, although she never married, and she was known as the Eternal Virgin. And she also went from being you know, the star for 30 years to just disappearing from public life. And people always wondered why. And she, but she never married. That's why she was known as the Eternal Virgin. Um, ironically, she hadn't died when this film was made, but not. She lived to ninety-five. Bless her. But um, yeah, it's it's very much using her story as a template for this. But yeah, it's just so clever. <laughs> it is very nice and nice. And I was trying to think of another film which obviously charts the sort of history of film in this this way. And I mean, there's other films that sort of like have nods to it like when you look at The Fall by uh, Tarsim and mm. for some reason my head just constantly goes to Xanadu which is just like more the history of <laughs> musical and it's an awful awful movie. It's Gene Kelly's last movie and features um, Olivia Newton-John 
butchering Eolo's Xanadu. Um, I, I hate it. I hate it when it's like on the radio, it's like, oh, we're going to play Xanadu, and it's like the Living Newton John one. It's like, no, play the ELO version. <laughs> I don't want some weak ass version. I want the Jeff Lynn one. And yeah, when you watch ELO, uh, watching when you watch Xanadu, and it's sort of like music by Jeff Lynn, you're like, oh, great. And it's like, and it's like Living Newton John. It's like, oh, okay. And it's like Gene Kelly. It's like, oh, that's good. And then you just find it's just terrible, terrible musical. That <laughs> apparently it's got cool to peel because people keep talking about the bloody it, thing. It is it is one of those cult films, yes, absolutely. <clears throat> um this however is good. Um yeah, as you said, you've got really nice sort of transference between time periods, which I think mm. is really great. It's never because when you look at a lot of these sort of films that are telling the sort of story over a number of years, you constantly flash back and forth to the present. And you see, like, uh, you have the young actress in these flashbacks, and you flashback to the old ass self. Like, you look at Titanic, for example. Mm. We have to constantly flashback to the old lady to, to get the story moving forward, and in this film, it never does. And I think it's because of the way the story's being told, and this is really clever on Con's part, in the and I think it was just his way of doing his sort of, like, love of the dreamscape into a very sort of grand film. But because you've got these two filmmakers who are playing the onlookers you can have this sort of blending of scenes so we can as you said you've got the scene where she's like riding the horse in like feudal japan and then um and then we can like suddenly blend to him her in the um rickshaw Mm, that's that's the um, word I was after when I said a sedan chair with wheels i meant a rickshaw and it's just so stunningly shot, um, and there's and it just constantly surprises you the fact that you have the scene where she's on the the train, and then suddenly we're into this sort of bandit film. So we'll go from like moments in her life to moments in film, and it just so perfectly flows one into the other. I mean, Connor was knows like how you can take a moment and how it would like inspire like a daydream style memory of a, of another event and certainly as herself as a as an actress it sort of opens up those moments so much so yes you can be on a train and be think oh well this is, reminds me of a time when I was filming this film and uh, we can then just flow seamlessly into the one and the fact that we're these moments where we as the audience are like confused as what happened uh, reflected in these two filmmakers because they're often with the audience is they tend to project what the audience is feeling. It's all like when we're confused, they're often confused and then we get our grounding again. So it's never, it, it will constantly shift on you, but it's never like to the point where you lose track of where, what, what's happening. No. And because I think because on the whole, the film always moves forward as well. So although there's the, there's the stuff that's set in the, let's say in the contemporary, <coughs> yeah. no, it does at least always, and we obviously have that beginning bit with the with the final film, so it starts off with the because he's watching, isn't he? Her last film um, at the beginning of it, but after after that, it's all forward. It's forward through history. It's forward through the history of cinema, through the history of history, if that's a thing, the history of history. Um, yeah. So so it's not so it's not it's not one of those films that's yeah. You know, I can't think of an example, but we've all seen the films which. Confu- mostly Christopher Nolan films, which delight in messing around in, in with time and space, and that's not necessarily clever. <laughs> that's just well, being oh, ob- ob- obscuring obscuring things. But I mean, we look at the Christopher Nolan's movies, and same as Aronofsky, uh, both owe such a debt to the films that Toshi Khan. The mm. especially when you look at Paprika and you look at Inception. And I mean, yes, they do obviously acknowledge they do inspiration from Khan's work. I mean, Aronofsky bought the rights to Perfect Blue just so he could borrow shots from it. And we see this in both in Black Swan and we see it in Requiem for a Dream. There's like shot for shot replications of uh, scenes that we see in Perfect Blue that are in those films, um, such as like the bathtub scream. We've got the scene where um, we get in Black Swan, where which is a sort of replication of the subway sequence. So, you can go now. I said you can do a quick Google search and you can see obviously the side by side comparisons to these films, but um, yeah, it's I think where Chris and Nolan 
I mean, Christopher Nolan tries to replicate it in, in many ways, but I think he's sort of going more for the visual sort of flair with these mm. things. But um, yeah, there's definitely the flavouring of Con there in his work. I think just the thing with uh, Christopher Nolan, though, he's just lucky. He's, I think he's with Warner Brothers, um, where he gets to be like the director who just gets to go off and make weird art house movies. Um, which Richard Kelly really needs one of those deals. I think a studio should like give him one of those. Are you still Richard Kelly's agent? <laughs> <laughs> my 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 noted friend uh, Richard Kelly. Mm. Um, yeah, I think if I think he when you look at Richard Kelly's movies and you look at Chris and Nolan's, I think they've got very sort of similar career paths. It's just one happened to be backed by a a studio that's willing to in you know endorse his little uh, fantasies. Um, and another was sort of like more just uh, sort of cast out due to um, studio failings. So, mm. I still hope that one day we get the Cannes cut of Southland Tales. I mean, it may be awful and and that, but there's just something about that movie I can. I just want. I just want need more of that film. It's so good. But um, <laughs> I think as we mentioned before, I mean Southland Tales. I think it's going to be those movies that I, I, I may just like. Char uh, in defending it, I think it's just one of those films that uh, I have to sort of live with the fact not everyone's going to to get it. Um, which it, again, it may bring to like uh, Paranoia Agent is his anime series, and it's all when I look at when we wrap up the Battle Royale podcast, maybe we we'll do like an episode by episode breakdown of that instead, or we'll find a way to work it in because I think it'd be good to to complete it because in many ways it's like his twin peaks but it feels in many ways the same on the same level of his film work as well so or maybe i'm just not ready to accept the end of our journey i mean we've got one more film to go and then we've there's no more con movies left yeah we'll have to save it (laughs) i know we'll have to save it i'm sure we'll find others We've got plenty of um. It's it's ironic. It's, it's it's remarkable, you know. We've got doing a film, uh, a podcast about Asian cinema, and we've done fifty nine episodes plus a couple of specials and things like that. And obviously got the Battle Royale thing going. And only last episode did we do our first Jackie Chan. Yet we've almost completed Con's films. We've not done a Ghibli, a Ghibli yet. Oh, we have done one Ghibli. Haven't we, we don't. We don't uh, Ghibli. Yeah, we've yeah. Uh, done the um, Castle Coglio show. Yeah, and I think I think the main reason is why when it comes to consumers, they're not all the same. It's not just he's just doing the same thing over and over again. You mm. compare his films like Perfect Blue is completely different to Tokyo Godfathers, which is completely different to Paprika, which is completely different to this movie. Mm. I mean, just like four films there, which are just they share in many ways. Some of them share similar sort of themes and ideas, but at the same time, they're so wildly different to each other. It just makes you just so sad that we lost such a talent so young really mm. um and you just feel like there was just so much more that we had to to see and learn from this director so but um yeah that's how you work in so many of his movies in the same because you don't feel that you're watching the same sort of movie it's not like we just did like um if we did like bruce lee movies which are essentially just this the same thing over and over again or we did like just Godzilla movies which again is just the same thing I mean with con movies are so wildly different he's one of those directors who worked in many different genres the same as Kubrick I mean Kubrick worked in many different genres even though he had many reoccurring themes so I again I think it brings it back to that comparison you were drawing to uh, to Kubrick and mm. and con well I can't I can't take credit for that I just it just was a common theme in in other things that I've read what I'll also say is, of course, it's very easy. You know, this was made after um, Perfect Blue. Yes. And Perfect Blue, on some levels, is telling a very similar story about a somebody who is obsessing over a public celebrity, a, a, a pop culture figure. But it's very different. Whereas what's going on in Perfect View is kind of creepy and stalkery and, well, basically murdery. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't feel as oppressive. You know, his obsession with this actress comes from a genuine love for her. 
and I don't necessarily mean a romantic love, although I think he does. <laughs> um, it coming from uh, it's a much more wholesome place, and of course he's got this secret. He knows something that she doesn't know, and this is his opportunity to kind of tell her. Um, so he knows what happened to this mystery man um, in her life, the one that sort of driven her and kept her chase. You know, she does get married, but the marriage doesn't seem to last. Um, you know, this this is the man that she spent her life chasing. And when she does find out, it doesn't matter because she'd given up on the guy a long time ago. But it wasn't about him, really. This mysterious man, we never really see his face, do we? We never really know what he was doing and what he was up to. It's just this mystery. It, it was all about the chase. That's what was most important. And that's kind of... that. that that's very different to what Perfect Blue is about, which is all about ownership and possession and loss of identity. Um... So they've got a similar ideas going on, but displayed in such different ways. I definitely so. I mean, kind of obviously stated the fact that these two, both Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, were in many ways sister movies. And you can look at the feminist, you know, theorem of the male gaze and just how it's sort of used in the two films. I mean, obviously in Perfect Blue, it's seen as a very sort of negative thing, whereas in. Millennium Actress is seen as a very sort of positive thing. I mean, by the fact that uh, Chiyoko is able to retain her identity, she's never tainted in, in many ways. When we obviously look at Perfect Blue, where we've got this idol um, whose sort of uh, image is is constantly being tainted by the choices she's making as she moves from being a pop idol into being an actress. Mm. And of course, you've 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 hit the nail on the head. In, in Perfect Blue, the the move to being an actress absolutely taints her. You know, it, it corrupts her image, it corrupts anything about her. In this film, obviously we meet the young girl who's, who's being tapped up to become an actress, but actually to be part of a, um, of a propaganda film, isn't it? <coughs> um, but her mother says, oh, no, 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 she can't be an actress. That's a flippity-jibbit career. She needs to uh, stay at home, run the family business, get married and have babies. And so cinema actually rescues um, Chiyoko, where it absolutely cripples the protagonist of uh, Perfect Blue, whose name I can't remember. But uh, that's shameful. But yes, it's very interesting. They're very... They're, there's so much commonality yet it's totally different stories and that's interesting because you think of many other sort of hack directors just tell the same films <laughs> and you say oh yeah they're just they're all you know Brian De Palma they're all bloody misogynists but I think this is a much more complex filmmaker at work here yeah, definitely. So I think <laughs> this is a point I, I find, especially with a lot of young critics, where when they review review anything, it's always about how it film affects them based on their personal politics, and that you have like most reviewers just like because they dislike the film is because it doesn't fit in with their personal politics, rather than trying to see where the director or the writer sort of standpoint is or the, the story they're trying to say um, everything has sort of fit in with their perfect little pub, political world bubble and I think as ourselves as sort of like come from a different sort of era where everything's not sort of motivated around personal politics that so we sort of a more of a sort of open mindedness to, to these things so I don't tend to pick up on like the misogynist of like De Palma for example um but yeah, uh, king of the male gaze, mate. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, you say that. Every, but uh, as I said, you can look at um, Coppola's uh, version of the Beguiled, where she actually takes it back and gives us a film based around the female gaze. Indeed, um, indeed. So, but on the whole, but but on the whole, <laughs> you know, film film directors do have certain viewpoints that you can, you know, Hitchcock. There's a classic one for the, you know, yeah. for the. For the for the male gaze fans, you know who who literally dollified <laughs> his his leading actresses and mutated them and changed them to be you know see what he did to Tippi Hedren you know t- turned her into somebody else um, and I know Con is not dealing with live action actresses but he's telling 
in some levels a very similar story but in totally different ways um fascinating i don't think anyone would look at this film and say oh my god she's had a you know she's she's been a victim of men her entire life i mean the way she has she's chased one for her entire life who never delivered and she was manipulated into a marriage by another one and she um she's also being chased by this other guy who's basically hidden a huge secret from her for her entire <laughs> life but but I, I just don't feel it's i don't feel it's a mean film at all no, I feel that when we look at the the artists that she's pursuing and the key, his key that she carries around with him, these are all sort of MacGuffins to really sort of drive the plot forward. And it's more mm. about her personal journey and, as I said, paying homage to Japanese cinema. And yes, I mean, we obviously mentioned about the Aussie movies in there, but this, uh, what I love about the film is it's not just about celebrating the highbrow cinema. The fact that we've obviously got elements of like pop samurai movies in there, like you can see elements of like Baby Cut and Peril and uh, Ladies. No blood, and I even want to say like, come drink with me when we look at the scene where she's playing like the ninja warrior, and she's got she uh, does the like attack on the carriage, and I was like, look at the carriage, I was like. That's not really Lady Snowbird. That just reminds me of the end of Come Drink with Me, which is obviously yeah. a, a Hong Kong I'm, production. But um, well, yeah. Although King Who was yeah. Um, there's yeah, also I mean, yes, there's it's... also um, <coughs> there's also a bit which reminds me of the female prisoner scorpion movies, yeah, when they're in um, when they're in prison, yeah, and all the girls are dressed in black and they're telling these slightly, oh yeah, that man, what's this, this is a bit that says, yeah, no wonder she hates men. The last man she loved ran away with all her money, <laughs> and <laughs> camera, cameraman goes, yeah, I need a girl like that. <laughs> But yeah, he's probably not such a good thing for saying it's not about the male gaze. But yeah, that that's all that women in prison movie kind of thing, which happened before the female prisoner scorpion films. You know, um, mm. there, there, there's like blind woman's curse and things like that, which have have that element in it as well. Um, so absolutely, the 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 Ozu stuff obviously leads to her marriage. Mm. Um, now I don't think. Well, obviously, the the actress it's based on, he didn't marry her or anything. I don't know if Con's making some kind of statement about what Ozu might have got up to. I don't, I don't think so. And that's that's the only worrisome thing I have in this film is, obviously, yes, it's all based on stuff, but it's not a true story. No, not at all. And I think I really appreciate the fact that there's some really decent action beats in this film. It's not just mm. about, as I said, it's not just about celebrating like. Um, these these renowned sort of directors like you know Kurosawa and Ozu as we mentioned numerous times already. I mean the fact that you can take great delight in just like crafting wonderful action scenes such as when we have like the um, the sequences like Ram and you've got the feudal Japanese scene and you've got that wonderful chase sequence which is on horseback and the samurai armor and then we have like the scene where she's like in the woods and she's uh, fighting rival actress who constantly is in all her films because apparently she's always cast opposite this actress whose name eludes me but she's this uh, older actress she's constantly cast opposite and you find the two often play like rival roles to each other like she'll play the older sister or as we oh, said Eco Eco yeah, and in the ninja uh, sequence, she plays like uh, the rival ninja and she's there with like the stickle and chain, which I think was really cool as well. So, um, yeah, I just just throughout this film is just just um, a lot of fun. It's it hits a lot of beats and it uh, manages to somehow pull it off, even to create this sort of journey that you sort of uh, are taking on with the film. That in a way that I think only Con can. I think he had a very unique way of telling his stories, and um, while he certainly influenced a lot of like directors in the West, I think it's very hard to think of another sort of director that moves uh, his films in this way. In, in, especially in terms of like anime, I couldn't think of any other directors who move this, and certainly not in live action either, that uh, make these sort of movies in this in his sort of unique way. I. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. He's a unique voice. Um, yes, because you know, even you look, at, you look at Miyazaki, he doesn't have this complexity. He tells really charming, wonderful stories, but they're pretty one-dimensional. Yeah, um, I mean, he 
he has the more love of the you know the fantastical and the and the escapism and flying machines and you know young girls uh, cleaning houses. <laughs> he has his own sort of beats that he likes to, to, to hit upon. He does, but I don't think he would. Ins- you know, I don't think his storytelling necessarily inspires. Whereas Con's got something more going on. He's yes, he's working in the. Um, you know, he's he's working in in the world of animation, but these are these are, you know, perfect blues are dark, scary, worrying film. This is a a glorious exploration of cinema and history um paprika is a really i mean paprika obviously is an adaptation but it's it's got um you know it's it's a really mind-bending mind-fuckery thing about life and dreams and stuff like that i haven't seen paranoia agent but i'm sure that's going to have more to go tokyo godfathers had for god's sake it had a trans character in it before that was a thing (laughs) you know not that it wasn't a thing but you know what i mean before that was can, can you think of any other animated movies that have a trans character? My God, they can't even have a gay teapot in in a Disney live-action version of, of Sleeping Beauty or whatever. Was it? No, it was Beauty and the Beast, wasn't it? Without causing the world to melt down with crisis. This is maybe not cutting-edge stuff, but it's really advanced stuff. It, it's animation for adults. Oh, definitely. So I think when you look at uh, Con's films, he was never sort of tied to the usual sort of themes of, you know, superpowered girls and giant robots and demons and <laughs> the, the other usual sort of animation tropes. He just sort of used animation as a way to tell very sort of adult and mature stories. Um, the same way that Miyazaki does in, in his own unique way. They're both directors who take the field of animation and and especially anime and don't feel that sort of they have to be tied to telling any one particular sort of story and just became very um sort of groundbreaking in in the films that they choose to make and certainly i think with con he was always he was always as i said he in much the same way we look at like akira and ghost in the shell and it's just sort of like wow we can tell these amazing stories through the you know the medium of animation um and he was sort of like the next the next one to sort of take that banner and run i mean you can as i say you look at akira which led the way to ghost in the shell and um in many ways led the way to perfect blue and yes there are other films along the way that uh did to add to that sort of journey like wings of honoris um but yeah i think it's just when those sort of, you can those sort of three films just really sort of I think reminds us all that anime is just not just one thing. So, but uh, yeah, highly recommend this one. I, yeah, um, I can't. I'm just. I'm, I'm kind of lost for words because I wasn't expecting to enjoy this so much. I was expecting to come and say, "Yeah, it's good, but not as good as Perfect Blue." Okay. And even talking about it now, I mean, I love Perfect Blue. Perfect Blue is probably one of my top three animated films of all time. Yeah. And this is now making me, the more I talk about it, it's making me wonder, do I maybe prefer this to Perfect Blue? Um, the only thing, the only criticism I've got is, you know, we talked about the hand-drawn animation, and there are moments of beauty on it. It does, at times, lack a little bit of detail in the character work. Um... But maybe we're spoiled by more modern animations. It just looks a little, it looks a little bit rough around the edges. And I also don't know if that's because of the crappy DVD. I think we've both got the same one. Well, I got. Uh, let me see. I got the Manga Force one, despite being sold on Amazon as mm. the the proper release. I got the Manga Force one, which was like the you know the. The monthly park work um, anime collection. And it actually surprised me the fact that this wasn't just a vanilla disc. It actually had all the special features and stuff on it as well. So that was actually a big surprise. Um, I to myself, I'm not sure I rank this as highly as you do. Um, for myself, like the top tier stuff is like Perfect Brew, Paprika, and then the next level down is like, I put this on the same level as Tokyo Godfather. Um, I don't even know if to say this is like an entry level film for con i mean it's certainly no no it's not it's not and i do think i'm like i like it because i'm a film nerd 
I'm an Asian film nerd, and I think I'm seeing things in it that if we showed this to even a more casual film nerd or to somebody who wasn't into cinema, I don't know if you'd get it all. That's my that's my concern. You know, is he is he playing to an audience of me, which is why I like it so much? Well, do you know what? It's time. Um as this film did reference a lot of um Yasujiro Ozu, I've decided it's time for us to look at Yasujiro Ozu film. And the one I have to hand is Tokyo Story, which interestingly um stars um I think does it stars it, yes it it does it stars Satsukahara so it'll be a nice sort of uh, double feature <laughs> for episode sixty and episode fifty nine um, so probably a slightly it'd be an interesting view for you being it's a slightly more highbrow pick but let's see how it goes. Hey. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.